You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back. Welcome in. This is Country Roads Confidential at Earsports.com. This is a Paramount podcast. I am Mike Casaza. This is Thursday morning in Morgantown, West Virginia, which means I, along with Chris Anderson, will be previewing the Saturday night game between West Virginia 3-1 and one, on the road against Texas Christian University, also 3-1. and one. Chris, exactly like we drew it up, defending national runner-up against the 14th place team in the preseason poll, playing for, um, I mean, kind of a proving ground moment for either one of these teams. Yeah, I mean, there's something to be said to starting out four and one and being two and zero in Big Twelve conference play for for both of these teams. Like you said, it 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 means something to each of them for different reasons. But uh, getting off to that two and zero start, and then for West Virginia going into a bye week would be just fantastic. And not that I mean, not that far off from maybe where we were predicting. I went back and looked at my game by games. Somebody was asking me about that, if I would change my um, outlook for this team, for the VIP mailbag. I had them two and two with them losing by three to TCU. And uh, they were, what, one, like, couple inches away from an overthrown pass to a wide-open guy in the end zone from a heartbreaking loss happening in that game, just like I predicted. So <laughs> not that far off from what I thought. And, and I expected this one to actually be a decent game as well. Just to put the record in perspective here, what does four wins mean overall? What do two wins mean in the conference? Four means it's going to be really hard not to be in a bowl game if you just look at the remaining schedule. That's a, an achievement, I think, for 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 the obvious reasons. I just I just think it's going to be hard for them to make a change after a team goes from not making a bowl game to making a bowl game. I could be wrong, especially I mean, if they if they go ho hum and they go six and six against the schedule. With a three and one start, that that still may ask some questions, may not answer all the questions. But also, their their high mark for a winning percentage in the conference is five hundred under Brown. They were four and four in twenty twenty. They did not play Oklahoma that year, so sorry, they probably aren't beating Oklahoma that year, especially the state they were in at that point of the season. To get two wins right now, to start off two and zero. Oh, it's one thing to be three games over 500 early in the season, but to be two games above 500 in the conference, you're going to have to play three games below just to match your best mark in the Big 12. So getting two out of the way, you just go, you know, three and four the rest of the way. You got a winning conference record and you have your best mark in the Big 12, too. So there's a whole lot of football left to be played. Um, October has not been the best month historically for the program under Neil Brown. I believe I, I'll have the number somewhere we get into it. So I think also just to get clear of 
this month, which everybody thought was just kind of hellacious, not wrong. Um, to get out of there with a four and one record would be pretty impressive, if not unexpected. Three and four, and by the way, three and four the rest of the way, seven wins. Yeah. So also a high mark, right? Yeah, and just to get back on the October thing, why does it matter? 0-4 in Brown's first year. And again, tough year, I get that. But first year, 0-4. Maybe your first year program is peaking. Wasn't happening there. Maybe you get some things together. Wasn't happening there. The next year, that was the COVID year. 3-1. and But that team, just for various reasons, had a hard time keeping together at the end of the season. 2021 gets to October. Um, 2-2. Two and two. Last year, getting into October. A better start, you thought, maybe. Nope, goes one and three. So kind of an important month right there. Um, just to get out of this one, get into that really, ah, oh man, that schedule we can talk about if you want to, but there there are some opportunities there for sure to make a lot of changes. But this does feel like a hinge game. But also let's talk about TCU here, Chris. Program that feels like it probably could and should be 4-0 and that was ranked in the preseason that does come back from the national championship game, which um they did play in. Just didn't play very well or very long. A whole lot of turnover, especially in the, the positions that propelled them to the national championship stage. But I don't know if people thought this was going to be as good of a team. I wonder what people think about the loss to Colorado, given what Colorado had done up until last week. Just because you lost to a team that was really, really bad last year. All of a sudden, they followed the top 25. They haven't been able to get back in with three straight wins, but they've looked more like themselves the past three games. And yet, while favored today, or while favored for Saturday, almost 10 points now if you look at some places. I do think that it's a game that people would say, well, if they lost to West Virginia, maybe West Virginia's better. Maybe TCU's not as good. I feel like that could work against West Virginia. It might be a great moment for them. But you might have people say, eh, it's not the same TCU team this year. But if TCU wins, what do they accomplish? They beat a West Virginia team that's off to a nice start but hasn't been that good for a while. Is there something for them to prove? There's a whole lot to lose, I'm sure. But where do they stand on the benefit from this? Lose-lose situation for TCU. That's what you're saying here. It's kind of a, a weird thing, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And it, and and it's it's weird because I feel like they have been – I feel like they got respect in the fact that they got to stay in the college football playoff even though they lost the Big 12 championship game. They deserved it. They went, you know, they went undefeated during the regular season, and that's that. But there was a lot of talk, and I, I was – I'm one of them. I'm right in there on this where – that was not a 12 and 0 team. And there was a formula. I'll see if I can find it. Can't remember how they actually break it all down, but it's the luck factor in college football. Um, and they were by far the luckiest team in college football last season. I think it's one of those like Pythagorean type things and stuff with turnovers and how many t- you recover turnover luck, which we've talked about before. But basically, they were an eight and four team that was masquerading as a 12 and 0 team. And that's disrespectful when you're a college football playoff team to be people to be saying that, but you know, eight and four is not too shabby. That is a top 25 team. And I think that could be the same case again this year where they are an eight and four type of team. And in that Colorado game, one, they didn't play well Two, Colorado did play well. And three, just some rough, rough, rough. Um, Luke's his timing of play. Yeah. Like Luke's like, you know, their two turnovers were both in the end zone or right at the end zone. They missed a field goal, stuff like that. So, you, you know, it, it not regression to the mean or whatever, but they just weren't lucky in that first game, and that was a tough one. Frequently, we've talked about this game through the years. It has been, well, one, 
they both came into the Big 12 at the same time, and TCU has just done more. Might have been in a better position. That was a team that was making it to the showcase games as basically like a, I guess you would call it a mid-major back then. That's before we had the group of five label. But came in, had the initial struggle that West Virginia did, but then got right back up off the ground. Trayvon Boykin, Josh Doxson, some very good skill players, got this team about as close to the, the playoff or the national championship stage as you could, and then changed. But we used to always talk about West Virginia's offense against TCU's defense. Changing a little bit right now, Chris. I don't know how we look at this one if we're just going to pick up, you know, um, if it's binary, let's say. TCU's offense against West Virginia's defense. Is that where we begin today? Let's do it because that is where our friend Jeremy Clark from our TCU site started. In an answer he gave to me, I asked him, and everybody can read this later, um, but I'll give you a little sneak peek here. I asked him, you know, what does TCU have to do in order to win on Saturday? You know, something they must do to get the win. And the second, offensively keep scoring points. And the second sentence it says, I want you to hold on to your seats here. Hmm. This WVU defense will be perhaps the best defense they've faced so far this season. No question, though, right? No question. It's what year? Weird. I'm laughing as I say it, but I don't think there is a question. I think West Virginia's defense is the best defense they've played so far this year. So we used to talk about uh, Dick Bumpus and Gary Patterson against Dana Holgerson, Jake Spavadol that offense-defense chess match. Um, a little different now. We're going to be talking about Garrett Riley. No, wait. Kendall Bryles, because they changed coordinators, and they're still pretty high level, but against Jordan Leslie, who has had a mixed bag with different personal possibilities um, against this offense that I don't I don't know if it's the same. It's similarly similar conceptually, but... They still run the ball an awful lot first. That's their preference. That's what they want to do. And that kind of brings up some question marks about the rush defense here. But I figure we should start here. If we're going to do offense defense, let's talk about the running game. No Max Duggan. Chandler Morris can run. No Kendry Miller, but uh, Imani Bailey's pretty good. Offensive line, eh, we'll see. Like, okay, okay so far, but again, hasn't run into a defense like this. But West Virginia's run defense, Chris, I think if you just gave somebody a quick, hey, what do you think of the defense against the run? They'd be like, oh, it's been pretty good. That's say otherwise. Rankings say otherwise. Ratings say otherwise. Where do we stand here about the TC rush offense, which, again, is what they want to do, probably especially when you look at some of the numbers for West Virginia's defense. And, again, if we're talking about what year is this, is up, down, you would think that West Virginia's pass defense would be what you pick on. But lately, that hasn't been true either. I think there's a lot of people in Fort Worth who will take it not so well that you, I think you, would you call Emily Bailey pretty good? He's better than pretty good. Okay. Yeah. Better than pretty good. Or at least, like you said, statistics say it, ratings say it, grading say it. He is, according to PFF, the most elusive running back, full time running back in the entire Power Five football. He has an elusive rating of 166. He is, without a doubt, the number one player in the Big 12. With anybody that has at least 20 rushes, you bump that up to 60 rushes, which is about 15 a game. So you're full-time starting running backs. He is numero uno in the entire Big 12 with 166. And he's this isn't a fluke either. Like if you go back and look, I mean, I know he's never had the 
let's say like the 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 large counting stats like the totals because even when he was at um was it louisiana lafayette right um or just louisiana mm-hmm. um i think oh yeah here it is 642 yards like okay who cares but he averaged six yards a carry he averaged 6.3 last year he was a backup to a backup but he averaged 8.1 yards per carry so him averaging six yards per carry right now and being one of the most elusive backs in the entire country shouldn't come as a shock to anybody because he's done it for his entire career. Now he's just being put on the main stage and in the front uh, starting role. So he is going to be, you know, Neil Brown talked a lot about Taj Brooks last week and and Brooks hmm. had himself a day, especially in the second half. But Bailey's going to be even tougher than Brooks was this past week. What if I told you that he forced 15 missed tackles this season? I didn't. It- in Not one game with what missed tackles are. So we're in one game, forced. but in one game, that's unbelievable. Last week, if you watch him against SMU, um, 25 carries, he forced a missed tackle 15 times. Um, he was, he was pretty fun to watch last week too. If he's in the game, Chris, he's getting the ball. He has 97 snaps this year and 81 carries. Not a lot of decoys. He's not running routes or whatever. He's there because he can run it. Um, he's he's pretty effective. He can break away. He can break some tackles. He can force some missed tackles. He's just a good player, like a, a college football veteran who's been in different offenses, who's watched good players, who's made the most of opportunities. Again, led the Big 12 in yards per carry last year. Um, and here he is now in a lead role and, and making the most of it too. We go to uh, the quarterback position. Again, runs a little bit, not Max Duggan or Dugan. We haven't have to go over that one anymore. But Chandler Morris, who remarkably, Chris, is older than his predecessor and yet is still a sophomore. He has two years of eligibility left after this. He played for Lincoln Riley at Oklahoma. He's in his second year at USC right now. And he still has two more years, Chandler Morris, of eligibility left. I don't know how this worked out. This is like one of my favorite. These are all funky eligibility equations now because of COVID and the redshirting and all that and uh, waivers and everything. He, he, heck, he might have one. I think he had an injury one year that cost him actually maybe two years. So who knows? Two years might not even be a, a, an exhaustive number of years he has left, but He's a guy who's been in and out of the lineup. He won the starting job last year, got hurt. Replacement came on, was great. And he's been good this year and, and kind of no threat behind him. He's healthy. There's nobody nipping at his heels. And they're not scared to use him as a runner, but he's been pretty efficient and effective as a passer. Again, even though they want to run the ball first, second, third. Yeah, I think one of the things that's standing out to me so far this year uh, through these four games, you know, I went through each game trying to look for pattern of where he's throwing, where he's having success. And it's changed almost game to game because I saw a chunk of that um, game against Houston a couple weeks ago. And he hit, I think it was two, maybe three deep passes down the left sideline. I was like, ooh, you don't see that. You don't see that throw very often. You know, you see the crossing routes and the slant routes and stuff like that, but you don't see the the deep go route down the down the sideline and him hitting like that so often. And I went and looked, and he hadn't done it in, in in any other game so far this season. And then you look at another game, and he's he's hitting, you know, center mid against Colorado, and he's hitting right against uh, SMU. So he's able to throw it kind of all over the field. And um, I'll say this: we, we'll, we'll talk. Maybe we'll talk a little bit more about him here in a second. But he's not getting a lot of help from his receivers hmm. in this category. But right now, his adjusted completion percentage according to PFF, which is like, you know, taking away drops, taking away throwaways and spikes, is just a hair under 
80%, which means when he is throwing the ball, he is on target 80% of the time. Pretty remarkable. Okay, so what do we make of that? Do you go after this guy? Do you not? Can they get after him? Can they not? Oh, better hope you can get after him. Uh, I think, I think honestly, it, West Virginia's best case scenario is to continue to get pressure and bring it in different ways. The, the concern here is that the Marcus Floyd um, trick is is out of the bag now. Everybody mm-hmm. knows what it is. Uh, so I don't know if that's something they can continue to rely on. But if somebody's hitting 80% of their throws, that's and your receivers, I'll go ahead and throw this little tidbit out. It's not some big long thing, but there are 18 receivers in the Big 12 with multiple drops so far this season. Four of them are on TCU's team. And a couple of them are so, deep balls, too, where he's put it on the money. They just have dropped it. Yeah, so that, that that's something I, I would I would take the gamble and try to get the extra pressure on him and make those receivers who have been prone to drops right now beat your defensive backs one-on-one. Here's a stat that I've, I've watched a couple of their games. Like like a lot of people, I watched the early game against uh, Colorado. Uh, I watched the Houston game, which was kind of a suffocation job by them. I have skipped through, skimmed through last week's game and because SMU is a pretty fun game with them usually. But Morris has dropped back 162 times. He's been blitzed, blitzed 61 times. That is a pretty big ratio. Um, only one quarterback in the Big 12 has been blitzed more. That's Will Howard and... 61 out of 162 that's man that's a lot that's about 38 percent here i think in my head however chris he's 37 to 55 for 400 yards seven touchdowns two picks he has seven drops when he's blitzed so while 37 to 55 is a healthy percentage it's right about two-thirds in my head uh 67 percent 83 percent if you count the adjusted percentage by the drops he's kind of dangerous if you blitz him a little bit here west virginia i think Fancy is a tough a blitzing team when you look at what they've done with Lee Koba and or Trey Lathan. They've gotten Jared Bartlett and Tyron Bradley on the field. Here comes Marcus Floyd around the corner. They have some different people, but also some different positions, some different combinations they can do. You'd like to take it out for a spin against teams because you've been good at it, but you kind of buyer beware right here because he has been so good against the blitz. I, no doubt about it. Looking at those numbers now, you can kind of pick your poison here. Uh, do you want to run the risk of, of blitzing him and him hitting? Because what it is also is more underneath routes when yeah. he's when he's blitzed. But the average depth of targets only seven and a half yards compared to uh, nine and a half yards when he's not blitzed. But man, it's that's some wild numbers mm-hmm. with seven drops and you got like an eighty three percent adjusted and- completion percentage. They don't have a Darius Davis. They don't have a Tay Barber, like a guy that he can drop it off to underneath and let him run away. They like J.P. Richardson as a slot guy, but he's a nice player. He's a leading receiver right now, but he's not Davis. He's not Barber, who were guys that were there for a long time and were really tricky. Let's get into their receivers here. They might have nailed the portal, um, certainly in quantity, but possibly in quality, too. They lost a ton. Mentioned Barber, mentioned Davis, Quinton Johnston left a year early. Top three receivers in all the major categories there. They've thrown some uh, transfers in. We mentioned Richardson. They pull guys from LSU, Arkansas, Ole Miss, like players who've been around and made plays. Hasn't quite worked here, but they've at least filled in the gap with like pass catch. Like who's going to catch the ball? One of these guys will. And they've also added Jared Wiley. They had him last year, but they've added him as more of a part of the offense. But maybe one reason they like to pass the ball as infrequently as they do is because they just don't have the the explosion and, and the take the top off and 
you know, touches turned into touchdowns that they had last year. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Uh, Richardson seems to be the guy that, that that's getting a lot of buzz for what he's done so far. He's leading him in receiving, I believe, right now. Um, somebody else interesting that I thought, I, I guess I just never even really thought about him. And he's not really, I don't think he's a new guy. Let me look real quick. Um, Major Everhart. Was a running back. back originally, mm-hmm. and our guy Jeremy over there at the TCU site has been raving about him. And when the the limited opportunities he's getting, um, he he's he's made an impact, and that's might be somebody to keep an eye out moving forward. If he's he's one of those guys you're talking about early that, hey, he he's a redshirt freshman, I believe. So we we don't know what he can do. And then he does a little something, a little something more, and a little something more in week three, a little something more in week four. And you're starting to see a pickup. You know, it was two targets against Colorado, two against an FCS opponent, then three, then six last week. So he may be picking up more of a a role in this offense, and that's somebody to keep an eye on. What do you think their offensive line? They've had players throughout the years. They've also run the ball across coaching staffs with pretty good success. Um Offensive lines seem to change quite a bit from one year to the other. Now it's rare you have a team of great continuity, even though we've seen West Virginia against Texas Tech. But look at some of the metrics. TCU's offensive line rates similarly to West Virginia's, but strengths, weaknesses, where might West Virginia try to puncture this offensive line? Yeah, I think one of the strong points is that center and that right guard area. Uh, Emily Bailey likes to run up the middle or kind of shading to the right a little bit. And right there in that middle from left guard, center, right guard, you got – Fifth-year senior, fifth-year senior, fifth-year senior. And that includes right guard Willis Patrick, who is somebody that West Virginia tried to recruit out of the portal. Um, he was a Division II All-American two years ago, went to Jackson State to play for Dion, started all of their games there at Jackson State, entered the portal again, ended up at TCU, and has been pretty solid so far for them. And and like I said, Emily Bailey has found a lot of his success running between or around him and John Lands, the center. Lands is a six-year senior. Oh, there's there's more of those guys out there than there were before, but to have that as a center, that's a pretty nice thing to have, too. Uh, run blocking, 
they're about two to one, maybe even more than that was zone. Um, Bailey's just really good at, at stretching out and trying to find, can he get between the guard and the tackle? Does he go outside the tackle? Um, he seems like he's pretty comfortable with that conceptually, but they don't really have a lot of like weak links here um, when it comes to their blocking. Their blocking grades are you know, high 60s to 70s, which is pretty good for PFF. Um, one of their tackles is pretty low, but they just keep hammering away at teams too and wear them down, and, and that seems to be where this goes. Um, I don't know. Is this as simple as West Virginia's defensive line has to be the best of the, I don't know, the best of the maybe six units out there if we're talking offensive line, defensive line, receivers, cornerbacks, running backs, linebackers? Yeah, I think so. Cause I think this is, this is one of those good on good battles. You know, you talk about maybe attacking weaknesses or going outside of your game plan to try to attack another team's weakness. This is just, Hey, they got a good offensive line. West Virginia's got a good defensive line and somebody's got to have to win those battles. And, and yeah, so I think this is going to be maybe the most important kind of group on group, uh, fight for this game. Yep, I just kind of feel like the spur, nickel, double bandit thing, whatever they're going to do there, that might just be something to watch because it can do pass rush. Like that position can get you to the quarterback, whether it's Floyd or Bradley. Um, But also like Hershey McLaurin left that game early last week, only played a handful of snaps, didn't hear about him this week. That's one reason they played Floyd so much, but that's maybe one other reason that they played the two bandits. But you still got to set that edge and make sure that the run doesn't get outside you. And we saw Tyron Bradley, he's played well since that early kind of fit he had against Pitt, but teams watch tape. And if they see him out, then they try to test him, stretch and plays out. Can he stay this one and do that? You know, it's kind of a big game for him. He can certainly help in the pass rush. He may have to help you a little bit as a blitzer or in coverage if, if someone else is blitzing, but he may also have to, you know, stretch things out, act like a spear, I guess, if that makes sense, or like set that boundary like a spear or even like an extra defensive back often does. That could be, could be a guy to watch, but they like him a lot. He's coming along. And Chris, did you know that he was a like top 100 player in Texas once as a quarterback? I was not aware of that until he said it. I looked it up, fact-checked it this week. He's actually right. I was not aware of that, no. Things change. Option mm-hmm. quarterback in high school. As big as that guy is, granted, he wasn't 255 back then, but still, like, tall guy, pretty good athlete, playing option quarterback there. And he played quite a bit as a senior, too. Flip sides of the ball here. Ooh, okay. Um the quarterback thing, don't know. I, I Let's just say without giving it away, we've covered this in the VIP side. There are some possible issues with receiver, who's going to play, who's going to be with the team. Running back, kind of starting to get a little bit that things aren't quite as good as they want to be, but it's really hard to run into seven, eight-man fronts consistently. Line is doing well. Running backs aren't doing poorly, but everybody thinks that this could go up a whole other level. But is this a defense, like a three-three-five run by Joe Gillespie? Is this a defense that you kind of get healthy on? Could be. You look at their missed tackle rate, and they're the second worst, uh, or the, have the second most, or the second highest missed tackle rate in the entire Big 12 Conference. Uh, only Oklahoma State is worse. So it is one where, hey, you can get out there and and you can kind of make guys miss. You can break some tackles. It's It's interesting to look at some of them because there's this kind of dichotomy here with a guy like, say, Johnny Hodges, uh, not Jamoy Hodge, Johnny Hodges. Um, he has the second highest stop rate in the Big 12, which is like, you know, stop, what is it, stop for a loss or or no gain in in uh, tackling against the run defense. But it's either like he's all in or all out because he also has one of the worst tackling grades in on the team and in the Big 12, uh, 45.9. 
and he has a lot of um a lot of missed tackles and he he was out for this most recent game because of a hand injury is he going to be back I don't know but then you start looking around at all those guys that kind of load the box the guys that they would bring in extra to load the box against West Virginia like a safety like Bud Clark um another big time missed tackle guy can West Virginia take advantage of it we discussed it last week about how just how bad West Virginia was with missed tackles forced from the running back room. That stat I gave you of the elusive rating from PFF, and mm-hmm. I said there were 28, 28 backs in the Big 12 Conference that rushed the ball 20 more than 20 times. Jalen Anderson and C.J. Donaldson ranked 25th and 26th, respectively, in elusive rating. I Again, this is one where you kind of get right. You got to start breaking tackles. You got to start running away from contact or breaking tackles or something because the three yards in a cloud of dust isn't going to cut it. Yeah, I'm kind of wondering about this because I'm going back to the conversation I shared before about how they kind of run to contact. And I'm thinking about like, okay, there used to be a thing about pitchers pitch to contact. They're they're contact pitchers and they would get fly outs or or like noisy outs, but they would get out. But then it became like, actually, I'm just going to rear back and throw my fastball like 99 and hit it if you can, but I dare you to hit it. And I'm wondering if, like, West Virginia isn't the 99-mile-an-hour fastball. I mean, like, I'm just going to run at you again and again and again. And maybe, like, in the third and fourth quarter, you're not going to be able to catch up to my fastball, so to speak. The trouble is, their fastball isn't very fast. It's, like, 91, 92, which is pretty ordinary right now. So this might not be the best thing. But I'm I'm just curious if they're on to something here that just because of the volume of people in the box and the obvious attention on the running game, it maybe by extension the passing game because of who's behind center and what they haven't been able to do around them. Does it make it that much harder to be good at what you want to do? We'll see because, again, just they're there. You mentioned the missed tackles. It's just, it's not that, but like their breakaway runs. I think there's three teams in the Big 12 that have fewer. And if you're going to hand the ball off this often, no one's run the ball more. If you have the third lowest number of breakaway runs in the conference, um, yeah, that's not good. Um, I don't know how they fix this except to like just keep throwing the fastball and hope that it gets over the plate and that they can't catch up to it. And, Maybe they stop fouling them off and they just start whiffing and you get some plays. But I don't think they abandon the plan here. Do they do the plan any differently? Do they blend people in in the running game? But or do they just hope that, you know, hey, there's a there's an even front as opposed to an odd front. Excuse me. There's an odd front as opposed to an even front. We're going to have an advantage. And if one guy can block to a second level, then we're going to have an advantage of the second level, too. It, it could line up in a certain way where th- this might be a team that can actually do some things with. Because, as you mentioned, Teams are running it on them, and because they're gaining yards after that initial confrontation, be it contact or a juke or something like that. There are eight teams out of 133 that have one or zero rushes of 20-plus yards this season. West Virginia is one of them. Hmm. And you're correct in saying that the Big 12 as a whole, not great. Iowa State, Oklahoma also in that category um <clears throat> the one rush can you remember it off the top of your head like i couldn't well it's not nico but nico was close though i think it was 19 yards uh yeah i, I, I thought it might have been a quarterback but it is not a quarterback i don't know jaheem white against duquesne <laughs> that's the only time west virginia has a rush for at least 20 yards this season so yeah got to um I want to. I want to fix that. Okay. Because that that's there's an interesting article that somebody tagged me in on Twitter. You know how you and I have talked quite a bit about the um, 
explosive plays and the lack of them at West Virginia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe it was Seth Emerson. Uh, he's over at the athletic now. And he wrote trying to find like a, Hey, why is Georgia so good? So dominant. And he took that and added the two pieces together. Basically the amount of explosive plays you get and the amount of explosive plays you allow and the difference between the two and Georgia was the best and has been for quite some time. And I think that's, that's pretty telling because we all know we all watch and cover college football. Um, and you can see how how big of a difference these kind of big plays make. Um, real quick, yeah. not helpful for West Virginia. There are 20 teams that have allowed allowed one or fewer long rushing plays this season. Can you guess who one of them is? No way, really? PCU. Holy cow. That would not have been my and, guess there based on the conversation we're having. And, and... West Virginia. Not kidding. That doesn't surprise me, though. But he's one yeah. based on how we're talking. That does kind of surprise me a little bit here. Okay. Yeah, I mean, because they got a bunch of missed tackles, but I'll get to where a few of them are in a moment. But because uh, a lot of them are in the passing game, so maybe this is a get-right game for Better whatever be, right? receivers yeah. may be around. Yeah. Let's um. Before we get there, let's get to the offensive line, defensive line here, because we gave it attention on the other side, the other matchup. But this is important too, because everybody knows well the story of West Virginia's offensive line. But here we are, tied for third in the country, sacks for TCU, and and again, they had sacks in one game, but it wasn't against the FCS team. They had six against Houston. They have sixteen total. They've been getting after the quarterback, decent on pressures, and again, an odd front where they'll come with people from the second level. It's not unlike it's not unlike it's not like West Virginia in that it's like an even front mostly. Maybe it's a bit of Tony Gibson actually from back in the day, but they're they're pretty consistent in manufacturing pressure here. And and it does feel like that they will try to find a soft spot. I was looking at some of their like attacks and their success rates. It's guards, it's tackles, it's through the middle, it's on the outside. And that's kind of where the opponent has been weak. I'm guessing they're going to try to attack a certain spot for West Virginia. Trouble is, I don't know where that is, because if it's a guard, guess what? They're just going to slide uh, Frazier over and help, or they're going to have a back ready to go or something like that. I, I just wonder if it's as easily done against West Virginia because of the offensive line as it has been against other teams that just frankly don't have the offensive line that West Virginia does. And, and to your point about where the pressure comes from, they're top pressures, both linebackers with 14. Uh, Jamoy Hodge, again, not Johnny Hodges, who I talked about earlier, Jamoy Hodge. And Obiazor, Obiazor, Namdi Obiazor, I believe. I don't know how you pronounce that, but he's he's he was somebody else I talked to Jeremy about because he is a converted safety that they have bulked up and moved alongside linebacker spot, and he is making a very big difference uh, early this season, leading the team in tackles and pressures and all sorts of stuff, really. All right, let's get a receiver against their secondary. They were awful in the secondary against Colorado. They have been fantastic since then. Gave up four touchdowns in the first game. No touchdowns, five picks since then. Right around 50%. Actually, the numbers for the past three opponents are almost identical. Um, like 16 for 37. That kind of a game for the quarterback. Um, West Virginia, again, just they're trying to find the right combinations and depth, if even depth is possible. And they have grown to trust or maybe even uh, possess <laughs> the number of players that they that they do right now too. But there are some matchups here. I think you probably have one or one possibility that West Virginia might be able to utilize. I have another that you might actually take it out of my uh, pocket here. But let's talk about the passing game. What Whatever quarterback can do, where do they look? What do they do? 
Well, I'll talk about one guy and then one stat that, that I think I want to watch here because the one guy is Bud Clark, and he is has the most missed tackles on pass plays in the entire Big 12 Conference. So that's one of those guys who has, at times, given up a catch, and then that 5- to 10-yard catch turns into a 20- to 30-yard gain. So that's something to keep an eye on in the secondary. But I want to focus on something that maybe has some parallels to the West Virginia team that you and I cover here. In the season opener against Colorado, uh, Shadir Sanders had a field day. I mean, obviously, they scored a ton of points, but he really picked them apart in between the hash marks. Going 28 of 30 for 410 yards, 28 of 30 for 410 yards and three touchdowns, no interceptions. That's just between the hash marks. The two FBS teams since then, Houston and SMU, no slouches usually offensively. Like those are usually two pretty good teams and they got coaches that know offense. They combined in the middle of the field, just between the hash marks, to go 17 of 28 with no touchdowns and two interceptions. So it makes me wonder what they changed. It kind of like how West Virginia was like, we're changing, we're changing the secondary, we're changing the defense. It's going to be different from what it was in, in game one. Did they do something that shut down that that middle of the zone, or was that just something that, that Colorado was able to take care of, take advantage of? We're going to find out because I just think that's where they have to hammer this. This goes right into my point, too. Their slot coverage has been problematic, Chris. Uh, when he covers the slot, which is what Clark typically does, he's that safety who drops down, he's been targeted 20 times, which means people see something, giving up 13 receptions. When their other safety, Abe Kamara, comes down, targeted 10 times, eight receptions. They play nickelback when he's been targeted. Four times, four receptions. When his backup has been in the field, three targets, two receptions. Chris, where is the wealth of productivity right now or trust in West Virginia's offense, middle of the field? Whether that's Cole Taylor, whether that's Preston Fox, whether that is maybe a blossoming Rodney Gallagher. If they're trying to make hay and it's hard to do it outside against, you know, I think Perry is not Perry, uh, excuse me, um, Foster. No, God, who's the cornerback they tried to sign here? Newton. Newton. Yeah. Like again, yeah. he's missed a game, but if he's there and he's good to go, you don't want to mess with him too much. They have good corners. That just seems like a guy that you avoid, and they're really good in the middle, West Virginia, when it comes to where they want to go. I think that's one to look at. Um, the slot coverage, the slot matchups, that's where their good playmakers potentially are, whether it's a running back or a receiver or a tight end. Got to take advantage of that. Finally, Chris, let's wrap it up. We'll be talking probably around midnight. Oh, geez. Um, who are we talking about? What are we talking about to explain the outcome? I'm going to go off the board, Mike. Off the board. We're going to be talking about special teams. There. I'm serious because TCU, one of the worst in the country in kickoff coverage. Uh, they have a couple turnovers on the, on special teams. Houston, I believe it was just Houston, did like most of their damage uh, against that kickoff return, kickoff coverage team. Six returns for 200 some yards, including, you know, a 90 some yard touchdown. But it wasn't just that one play that really did it. They were able to get chunk yardage. Um, on those kickoff returns. I think it's over 25 yards per return for the season that TCU's allowed. And I think you know when you look at for something on offense, I can't think of much defense. It's going to be a full collective team effort. So I think the special teams might give West Virginia the advantage, those extra 20 to 30 yards each drive that can help them win this game. ECU has blocked two kicks, though. Mm-hmm. Guess what? Yeah, that, that could be something to watch. Um, I like it. Obviously, I'm a fan of special teams. I won't argue there. 
I'm going to go back to what I went to last week. I think hot starts are going to be important. The scoring differential, Texas Tech and West Virginia the past few years, way in Texas Tech's favor. Different story last game. We look at what the teams do this year. TCU just given up 13 points in the first quarter. They've only scored 28, though. That's the fewest scored either way, whether it's TCU or the opposition. Problem is West Virginia just doesn't get in the hot starts. No scoring drives here. Uh, touchdown drive to start a game. Just 14 points. They're minus six in the first quarter. They're plus 35 in the second quarter. If they can survive the first quarter and be prosperous and get some momentum, they usually get something going in that second quarter. I know a lot of that's jaded by Duquesne, but they've been good in the other games against second quarters, adjusting, covering up, getting something going. And then they're just plus three and plus two in the third and fourth quarters. You bring that up. Sonny Dykes does not lose when he leads at halftime. He has not lost as a TCU head coach. Um, Again, hot start on the road and make the other team realize that this is going to be real. That'll wrap it up. All the regular preview stuff coming up, Chris's matchups, my fresh set, and a full day of coverage on the site before the game kicks off on Saturday. Until then, I am Mike Kazaza. I'm Chris Anderson. We will talk to you then.